youth director or whatever you want to call it for this church. Um, I'm filling in for John, who is not here. He's moving, which is really awesome. He finally found a new place, so that's really cool. Um, this la- last song was kind of what this whole message about is freedom, what we're actually free to do as Christians, and about rights and uh, that whole kind of thing. And a lot of this started because... I was kind of doing messages that have been similar to John's, but not on purpose, at the youth. And one of them was on prayer. And kind of, I started praying a lot more than like going right into, oh, it's time to do a message, so I'll just start like, it needs to be about this. And I'll kind of start doing research and kind of make sure that I get it all together first and then kind of pray about it. And then this time God was kind of saying to maybe pray about it first, but I was like... I don't have time because i got to do like a Wednesday night, then we got this other thing, and then it's Sunday, it doesn't really leave me much time, so it's kind of not going to be very fancy because I, I tried that, so hopefully uh, this, will all be, uh, this will all be cool. Um, God's kingdom, like John talks a lot about how God's kingdom and, and the kingdom of the world, the up here, down here thing, how like vastly different they are. But I don't really get the sense that we really see how vastly different they are. Because a lot of times churches don't really operate with God's economy. They kind of operate because they're kind of run by men. And men kind of see things the way men see things, kind of like me planning my messages. If I have to give a message, then I know I have to have something done, something on paper, and it's not going to get there by praying, so I, I better get going and start working, which is kind of a lot what churches do in their way that they see and approach problems in ministry. We kind of figure it out ourselves and then kind of bring to God the things that we've figured out and and tell him what we're going to do rather than kind of seek his his guidance on it. So as I was preparing this one, that one was kind of a lot on my mind. But if the kingdoms are actually at war, that's one thing John mentions, but then it kind of, it's kind of a short mention. But when you really think about two things that are at war, they, are, they cannot coexist together. They are absolutely opposed. They've gotten to the point where people who don't know each other are getting guns and shooting other people who don't know each other. That's how incompatible the people are. So when the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world are at war, it means they're completely incompatible. It doesn't mean that you kind of adopt a worldly standard and then throw Jesus on top of it and make a kind of like Moose Lodge type organization that instead of a family fraternity, it has Jesus on the top of it. It's kind of supposed to be God's kingdom and the world's kingdom are supposed to be different. Therefore, churches need to reflect a lot of difference. And for you guys who are new, this is really going to be really awesome news. For you guys who aren't new and have been here for a while, this may be a little bit challenging. But this whole thing about war is a spiritual warfare, which is even worse than human warfare because the spirits have been alive and warring a lot longer than humans. Humans' lifespan of actually waging war and becoming angry, unless you talk, are thinking about Noriega, who's kind of lasted a while. But it's usually by the time you're 70 years old, you kind of lose your like, dictator status and your ability to really rile people. And I kind of, you have to kind of grow up and do things for a while. So kind of man's window for actually waging war and being really angry is kind of small. But spiritual forces have watched mankind ever since they've been on this planet and gotten to be really good stu- uh, students of how we think. So like if it's an actual spiritual war, it's actually a lot worse than a physical war, but we tend not to think of it that way because a lot of it is unseen. Um, the economies of God's kingdom and the earth's kingdom are completely different. 
By economies, I mean standards of judgment, things that we view as fair, things, uh, standards of judgment of success, what we view as successful in God's kingdom. A lot of, like if you want to uh, think of Jesus' ministry, for being God, coming down to earth, spending his whole life here, basically he ended up with three people who were really kind of understood and kind of took it to the next level. He had maybe 500 followers, and that's about it. So, like, on a world standpoint, his success was kind of small. He didn't really have large quantities of people following him. Whenever he did, he would start teaching something really hardcore and pretty much drive most of them away. His view and his kingdom of what success was was different than ours. Let me see if this... Um, The way that the church's members interact and view their places also within the church should be different. In the world, where you are and what position you have and working your way up towards things is really part of how the whole system works. In churches, it's not. It's absolutely the opposite way. And there's a parable of Jesus that illustrates this really well. And we'd like to point out that um, this is someone asking Jesus, who is actually God, who came actually in human form so he could communicate in human's language. And then people asked him, what is heaven like? And as Christians, people talk about heaven a lot, talk about the afterlife, talk about all these blessings and stuff. But they usually are telling kind of what they think it's going to be. But like if someone asks Jesus, what is heaven like? And he answers, it's worth really paying attention to because his answer really doesn't uh, match ours too well. It's from the parable of the workers in the vineyard in uh, Matthew 20. I won't break it down too much because I'll save that for John who is in Matthew. Uh, For the kingdom of heaven is like, whenever Jesus starts off something like that, it's kind of like he's going to describe something that's very important and what's going on beyond that we could see. He says, it's like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them, which I want to kind of... Uh, start by saying if they had an agreement it means they had a discussion you just don't agree in your head means they wanted to know how much are you going to pay how much is this work so they basically kind of had a contract either a verbal or whatever but the first people really wanted to know what they wanted insisted upon what they thought was fair and then went to work he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard about the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing which in today's uh, world we may say standing around skating. (laughs) He told them, them, you also go and work in my vineyard. I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. So these people did not insist upon how much am I going to get paid, what's my contract. They decided to trust the landowner. They wanted to trust in his character and who he was and like pay me whatever is right. Very rarely will we approach a situation and just say, charge me whatever you want. Like, I don't, you know, I'll pay you whatever is right when you fix my car or whatever. We usually want to know everything in writing ahead of time. About the third hour, he went and saw, oh, that's already written down. I went out about, I uh, went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and still found others hanging around. And these are the ones who generally don't get picked for jobs. The ones that are still hanging around at the end are either highly unmotivated, really good skaters, or there's something wrong with the work that they do. (laughs) He asked them, why have you been standing here all day and doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also 
go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard came and said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now the fact that he gave that instruction is rather interesting. We'll get into that in a little bit. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us, which is another interesting way that they are viewing themselves. They think that they should have been above the other people who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Then take your pay and go. I want to give to the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So it's like God's kingdom is like that. That's heaven. This is kind of what we have to look forward to as being Christians. Is this kind of like like fairness that doesn't make any sense to us, that we're not in any control of? Absolutely. The first person, the first person, first people hired wanted a contract and they got exactly what they wanted. God gives you what you want. If you want to serve yourself and he gives us the freedom to do that, that's like called hell, which we won't talk about much today, but he gives us the freedom to kind of choose what we want and we'll honor our choices. Um, the last people hired were going to trust the landowner, which is cool. It is interesting to note that he paid the last hires first so that the people hired first could see it. That's kind of intentionally trying to mess with them. <laughs> it even is written down that, hey, pay these guys first, which was he totally wanted the other people to see it so that he could make a point. So it's like... Even the way that Jesus kind of conducts his business may seem like he's just trying to mess with someone and rub it in, and that's normally, in our economy, we don't do that. In the world's economy, you don't get someone that just kind of came in and did a little bit and put him up in front of the guy who's really been working hard and reward him more. It's just not good for morale. There's probably tons of books written about how you don't do that. But Jesus does it that way, and it's for a reason. In this parable, he makes it clear that in his kingdom, we won't have identical uh, blessings or identical workloads. In the kingdom of heaven, everyone who is willing to work will be given a place to serve. The pay scale is God's business and not ours. That's really good to keep in mind. He's the hiring, the landowner. It's It's not us to determine what's fair and who should get what, and look what I'm doing at church. I'm putting in all these hours. I'm doing this. Nobody's thanking me. And that person over there, everyone thinks that they're doing such an awesome job, and they're actually all my ideas, and it's not about that. It's about cells of the body all working as one. The eye cannot say. It's like I don't need the hand. Even though, like, when it's talking about looking at nature and you're standing at a lookout in a beautiful camp area, your hand isn't really doing much except holding the guardrail to the camera so that you can prove to other eyes that your eye was there, which is kind (laughs) of what cameras do. Like, uh, as far as, like, Christian cuss words go, there should be one, 
and it's, that's not fair. A Christian shouldn't be allowed to say, that's not fair. That should be really offensive as if you were cussing. Because according to God's kingdom, us judging fairness isn't our job. And the way God describes his kingdom is it's not fair by your standards. Get over it. It won't be. And if you think it is, I'm going to actually pay other people in front of you so you get the point that it's not. So the only time you actually can say it's not fair and it's not considered Christian cussing is if you are referring to the fairness for others, not yourself, and it comes at your expense. Because a lot of times we can kind of be on the lookout for fairness towards others, but it's actually a political agenda which actually empowers us, which doesn't really cost us anything. We're kind of looking out for others' rights, but we're not really doing anything about it. So if you're looking out for somebody else who's not treated fairly and it comes at a personal cost to you, you're allowed to say that it's not fair and get involved with it. That's kind of, kind of more in line with how his kingdom works. What does this do to your idea of fairness? Does it kind of change things around a bit? Do we still think it's kind of our job to really be the monitor of, uh, for God? It's more about having the right attitude in service, not having the right attitude about service. Many churches actually did, weren't even good at having a right attitude about service. They were about kind of rejoicing in the blessings of the Lord and, you know, kind of it was about personal gain, your own personal salvation, your life in Christ. It's a lot of it's focused on kind of the personal issues, which is what our country is kind of works on is individual freedoms and individual rights and the individual is elevated here so we kind of just by the fact of where we're brought up tend to bring that into the church as well so a lot of churches don't even have the right attitude about service but it's kind of changing where yeah we know that we need to help the poor we know that we need to to uh, feed the homeless we know that we need to take care of families who are hurting we know that we need to take care of messed up troubled people So that's been a really awesome change that's been happening in the church. But a lot of times people have the right attitude about service. In their small group and at church, it's like, amen, preach it. That's awesome. We really need to do this. This is really what God is wanting us to do. But when it comes to the right attitude in service, then we start invoking our own rights. Because whenever God is doing work, it's usually messy. The people that, he's, that he loves and wants to save a lot of times are the people who are kind of messed up and are a little bit uncomfortable and hard for us to be around. They're not very far along. They don't know, they don't know yet what God's laws are and that they're worth following. They've been living their whole lives by their own systems. You can't expect people like that to come in, be super polite, understanding, appreciative of all that you're doing for God, thankful, blessed. It's really awesome that we're having a food ministry and that people are coming over and that there's a lot of kids from the neighborhoods coming around and skating. That's like, that's awesome. God's doing stuff. But it's when you're in ministry and you're actually in the line of the food line and people are complaining and yelling at each other and then people are cussing out the kids skating because it wasn't their turn and there's all kinds of like things that aren't easily wrapped up in a nice message that start happening. What's your attitude then? Is your attitude then, that's not fair? Why should they get cuts in line and get more food than this family? What about this family? And all of a sudden we start to judge fairness 
And I shouldn't have to deal with this. They're like leaving a mess and our property is a mess. They should respect our church. They shouldn't be like just throwing junk all over and not cleaning up. That, that's, you know, if they're not respecting it, that's enough of that. That's kind of, that's our rights. We, have, we think we have the right to have a nice property and have everything maintained and have everybody be super blessed that we're giving food and be very thankful and appreciative and take their turns. And they don't work that way. It's more about having the right attitude when you're actually doing the service because faith without works is dead. Talking about service is nice. It may make you feel better. It may make you feel like your church is kind of heading in the right direction from personal victory and personal success into at least reaching out to others. But if we can't pull it together when we're actually doing it, none of that really matters. So it is about treating others, uh, treating others well at your expense. So it's kind of, that brings us to the question, what about our rights? Kind of being an American, that's a big part of what we talk about and uh, kind of how we view things. Rights are actually, what we, what we view rights uh, boils down to a matter of law. And most of our laws are backed by jail. And who makes laws? Uh, countries and governments do. So basically, our rights are just laws that other people put in place, that we were happened to be born into a country that has a certain set of laws around it that we just view as our inalienable rights because somebody wrote that down on a piece of paper. They wrote that it's an, our inalienable rights, so we'd say that it sure is. But to be honest, it's basically a law that says that. Most of what we take to be our rights are actually privileges. They're not really rights. And privileges, the uh, definition. A law for or against a private person comes from privious, which is private, and ledge, which is from law. A right or immunity granted has a peculiar benefit, advantage, or favor. Which most of our rights, those are what we have, just the fact that we're Americans. There have been laws passed that we have certain things that people aren't allowed to do to us. We have certain things that we can expect society to do to us. And if someone doesn't, that's when we get lawyers, and lawyer has the word law at the beginning. It's a lawyer's job to interpret what laws people wrote and determine whose rights were violated. And basically, all of our rights boil down to somebody getting thrown in jail. If uh, you take my computer, and I say, that's my computer, and you say, no, it's not, it's mine, and I say, I have the right to have my computer, basically, well, someone will call the cops, they'll come, and they'll basically look at a number on this computer, They'll look at my number, which is my social security number. They'll look at a transaction number that's on a computer file and determine that this is my computer. And if, he, and if whoever took it doesn't give it back, they're going to go to jail. So they either have to give it back and succumb and admit they were wrong, or it's jail. So that's kind of what our rights boil down to, is blow the whistle and tell and have someone come and look at our numbers to see whose is right, and then basically... There's somebody standing in front of you to kind of make, make the other person comply. Our rights are really just a matter of legal. Ownership is also a matter of law. Basically, none of us own anything. The Bible actually tries to say that. Everything is God's. We've just been given the ability to, like, the trust to work on some of it. But everything is actually God's. The only reason we call it ours is because there's a piece of paper that has the number of whatever product on it like your registration on your car, your car's got a number on the dash, you've got a piece of paper with a number on it. 
so that if someone is driving your car and you didn't allow it, you could have them thrown in jail or make them give it back or pay you money or whatever. So that's kind of what, li- what rights are. The only thing the Bible really says about lawsuits and about all that stuff, which Americans spend a lot of time talking about it, is uh, if somebody sues you for your coat, give them your shirt. It doesn't say, be really wise and avoid people suing you. Make sure that you're really smart with your money so that you're never taken advantage of. It doesn't say that. It says, when people sue you, kind of assuming that they will, and they want your coat, give them more than they're suing you for. Don't go fight and argue and try to keep the rest of your stuff because it's not your stuff anyway. It's all God's. A really good example of kind of, of a church that really got this idea really well is St. Patrick. St. Patrick basically uh, was a, a British person, kind of like a Roman British because he was kind of in the year 500, I think, around there. So he basically was kidnapped by Irish raiders and brought over to Ireland to work as a slave and was kind of a slave over there, and then he escaped, and then came back home, and then viewed that, like, whoa, this was kind of heavy. I think I'm going to go serve God, and became a bishop, and really got learned, and became kind of high up in the church, and then God was always calling him back to go to Ireland, but he knew if he went back there, they would kill him, because you don't, if you're an escaped slave, you just don't go back up and saying, yeah, I, I shouldn't have escaped. So he took a really big risk and actually followed God to his death, supposedly to go to go back there. And they were because uh, back then, basically, there wasn't really any governments. Europeans were called barbarians for the most part. They lived a very kind of nomadic pirate type existence, kind of taking what they could and, and working the land. So when St. Patrick came down there with humility, asking for forgiveness for escaping from people that actually took him and kidnapped him and brought him to a place as a slave, they were completely blown away and wanted to know more about his God and why he was doing this. There was not really any churches there because the churches in the rest of Europe viewed the Irish as just barbarians that were unsavable. They were just savages. They basically had to clean up their act, get their act together before they were worth uh, refining and churching because we don't want those kind of people... In our churches, church, you have to uh, act a certain way. He didn't have any of those stipulations, so he set up monasteries that ran very similar to the, the early church in, the, uh, in Acts. Basically how it worked is everybody put all that they could and as an act of worship worked with their hands and built things and built, did excellent work. That was their worship. They weren't just trying to throw stuff together really quickly. So basically they had one or two really, really nice houses that were just in the really nice area, in the best place, and then they had a row of a few more that were pretty nice, and then a few more that were worse, and eventually you got towards the bathrooms and the pigs and where the animals were kept, and there was a whole bunch of really trashy houses, and some of them just slept outside in the mud in those areas. And how it kind of worked is the people that ripped people off, the savages, the awful people, when they were, came and inquired, like, why are you guys like doing this here? Come on in, you're welcome. They loved them, and those people are the ones who got the nicest pad. And who was ever in the really nice house was like, oh no, go for it, man, I don't need this anymore. It's awesome that you're here, you take it. And then as they would be like, the next guy in the next nicest house would be, oh, you need a place, stay in my next nicest house. That's cool, I'll move down there. So basically the leader who was in charge, the priest, the pastor, whatever you want to call it, basically lived in the mud and the poo right by the pigs. 
And it's the people who are the undesirable people that were really hard to get along with, that weren't very far along at all, had the nicest digs, and were served like kings by the people who were the farthest along. And the, the idea was, is a big idea. I should have put that. We missed the big ideas. But uh, what the big idea was, was that as you mature and grow, you're maturing to the point of service to where you don't need that house anymore. You're starting to see that God's kingdom does work different. And the longer you've been going to the church, and the, the more you should be growing, and the closer towards God's kingdom you should be, and the less you really care about any of your rights whatsoever. The people who care about their rights and what they get are the people that don't really know anything yet, and we're just here to love them. It's the mature believers that are the ones who should be backing off, sleeping by the pigs, and letting the, the, the new people kind of be loved and served. But how often do we really not think about church that way? It's kind of, how long have I been going here? I've been going here for 25 years, so I should be able to da 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 and get this and get that. It's kind of the opposite. It's you haven't been going here, and you don't know really how to behave around here, and you do some obnoxious things because you don't know. So you get the best of everything, and we just love and serve you. That's kind of what we're here for. What happened actually was the, uh, the powers that be where, where St. Patrick got bishopized or whatever you want to call that, they kind of started finding out what he was doing and were absolutely furious because they tried to, uh, very wealthy women were trying to give him gifts and stuff and he wouldn't accept it. The church tried to give him a lot of money as well and he wouldn't accept any of the money. Uh, it was common practice then that you charged uh, people to be baptized because that's how they got saved. And you, why would you give someone heaven and not get something back? So he wasn't charging for baptism. You're supposed to charge to ordain priests. He wasn't charging the priests. So they thought, I don't get this, but they thought he must be in it for financial gain <laughs> because he's not taking any money. So he must have something else going on. So they actually went and got him, put him on trial, and... Uh, the really big thing he did was he celebrated Easter on the wrong day, so they're definitely not Christian. Because Easter floats and moves around a lot, and I guess he had a hard time keeping track of what day it was actually on or whatever. So basically, they came in to re-Christianize what St. Patrick did and built their cathedrals and put in their very orderly type of churches that they had, and Ireland hasn't been the same since. There was a huge revival that they had, and it's been kind of religiously polarized about what's the proper church, and they've been fighting over it kind of ever since. So it's kind of God's economy over there worked awesome. There was like people that had no chance of ever hearing where their lives were being completely changed and worked around. There was a time when there was extreme hardship and poverty in the land, starvation, people were going without. Everyone in the monasteries was fed, had enough, had a good life. It's kind of, wow, that's pretty cool that that's, that's really how it worked that way. So the main point of this kind of is that it doesn't have to make sense, which is really, if you really think about it, it takes a really large burden off of our shoulders. It's not up to us. We don't have to sit and be the judge of what's fair and, hey, how come they're doing this and how come there's, this doesn't make sense. Why is this, why do these people get this and how come there's nothing here for me or for that or all of that stuff takes a lot of energy to try to be the police and kind of keep track of what everybody's doing and be the guarantor of fairness in the world. If we really do trust God and let him make, 
take care of things and just realize that our place is with the pigs at the last of the line, fairness is irrelevant. Because either way, it's great. If there's enough new people that you're actually needed to sleep by the pigs, it's awesome that God is doing so much in your community that all of the good places are full. If there's not that many new people and you're not with the pigs, then be grateful that you're at least three houses up. So either way, it's kind of good. If you're worried about what's fair, it's miserable no matter where you live. Because you're always trying to jockey for what position and who's going where. It's kind of like surfing in a place without a lot of locals who kind of they jockey for position, trying to paddle where the wave's going to be. And it's like, dude, I was sitting here for 10 minutes. You don't just paddle over here. And It's kind of that type of etiquette, which kind of makes for fights in the water, if any of you guys surf. But uh, <laughs> it doesn't really work so well when we have to keep track of who rode how many waves and how fair things are. And please do not demand that it makes sense and demand that the church explain that it makes sense. When you go back to the, the uh, idea of the monasteries that St. Patrick had, what if like the people who were in the third houses down just wanted to call a meeting and demand why that they had to give up their good house and they were just kicking back with the umbrella drink in one hand, their feet on the table, not really growing, not really learning anything, going, this is awesome, I was like starving, we didn't even have any potatoes and now... I'm like kicking back in here and all these people are my servants. It's like that and that, you could totally see how that would kind of cause the whole thing to fall apart. Likewise, if you demand for fairness and equality for yourself or demand to know why things are a certain way and, and you're trying to use the world's economy judging God's kingdom, you'll be throwing a wrench into a perfectly nicely running machine. That will require the efforts of many people who could be serving other peoples to kind of pull it out and try to tell you not to throw it back in there again. Immaturity of believers is a huge stumbling block to this and to pretty much all service. Um, You've got to kind of ask, do you come to church for, for your own meal to get fed? That was kind of a church term for a while. I'm here to get fed. I'm here to, like, to benefit. Um, Paul in Second Thess- uh, Thessalonians 3.10 says, uh, Even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will, will not work, he should not eat. Meaning, if you're not involved in service, you're really not supposed to be getting fed anyway because you're getting fed to work. The reason that you're learning and when you're, why you're in the nice house is so you can learn to give that house up to someone else so that you can become an actual productive part of the monastery, which is how it gains its life and how it sustains itself. A bunch of people, me, 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 where's mine, where's mine, the whole thing will not last. And that's kind of why you don't see churches as vibrant, really, as you did back when those principles were uh, really put into place. And there they kind of had to be because of the way that the climate and the society was. It was they were so impoverished, they really didn't have... Like, we have so much wealth, wealth and everything and so many options of things to do, we don't really have to really get that involved in God's kingdom. We're, we can pretty much feed ourselves take care of ourselves without really needing to trust and and rely on God or other people. And then it's easy to come to church as just a nice kind of uh, social club where we kind of get together and talk about common things we all agree with and then feel empowered and kind of not really get involved, not not really do that. So it's basically if it's good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. John 13:16 I tell you the truth no servant is greater than his master nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him So 
if we're not greater than Jesus, why should we have more perks than he had? When we insist on our own way, we're saying basically that we deserve more than God got, which is kind of a very arrogant statement. In Philippians 2.6, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. He was God, which was the highest you can be. He had all the rights. He actually was the type of person who deserved all of the rights and gave them up to become the ultimate nothing of a servant to the point where he wasn't born into anything. He lived a super hard life the whole time, and he says, follow me. And then we can easily quibble with other people about how come so-and-so gets a better parking place than someone else and when are we going to fix the carpet and all these kinds of perks that we think we deserve that Jesus never claimed? When we insist on our own way, that's uh, like saying we can also judge fairness better than God can. And God says, uh, it's mine to judge, I will repay. So we're saying, yeah, I don't really think you're that good at it. I think I can kind of handle this. I think you're falling down on your job. And I can clearly see how you should have done this, so I'm going to take care of it and do your job better than you. Not many of us think of it in those terms, but really that's kind of what we're actually saying. When we think we can judge fairness better than God, and God's already told you, hey, here's my standard. It looks nothing like yours. Trust me. And then we hold up our standard and try to rectify and fix God's mistakes for him. That's really not a position we kind of want to be in. So I promise this time I will definitely be uh, not nearly as long because I went long last time. So I'm actually going to cut it short by the exact amount. So technically I've been on time the whole time. <laughs> so basically I have together what's called a Christian Bill of Rights to kind of uh, show the, the difference. I gave all you guys a copy of this that has all the scriptures on them. I'm not going to read them all because that would blow my timing thing. And most of the rites kind of have the scriptures contained within them. I would really encourage you guys, if you do small groups, Bible studies, and meet, is to kind of go over these and maybe look them up and spend some time with them so that uh, you can kind of take it with you and it'll last a little longer. But basically, as a Christian, these are our rites, which are quite different than American rites. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have only one right, and that is to give up all rights to ourselves. And in case you don't like that one, it's in there twice. Just so, just so you don't think that I took something out of context and you can kind of get out of that one. Number two is we have the right to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. We have the right to esteem others more highly than ourselves and love our neighbors as ourselves. That one means everyone that, that's, an, that's an other, that's not a you, is better at what you do than what you do in your mind, and the way that you treat them. Everybody is smarter than you. They're sharper. They do better work than you. You compliment. That's how you're supposed to view everyone else is higher than you, which really stops the boasting. It stops the protecting and making sure that they see that I'm good at this. It really does make life burden-free. If you automatically die for the last position in line, you're not going to fight anybody for it. <laughs> That's what's really kind of cool. You get everything you want. It's just walk right in and boom, you got it. And if you are fighting someone for it, you've just met another awesome Christian. That now there's like two of you that can join forces and even do more, so it's a win-win situation. We have the right to be wronged and maintain a faithful testimony. 
So you have the right for someone to totally treat you absolutely awful. It's not even like you don't even have to prove it in an argument that it actually was awful. Everyone acknowledges, yeah, that was horrible. And still talk really nice about that person. That's your right as a Christian. We have the right to live in unreciprocated, self-sacrificial love. So unreciprocated means no one says thank you. Nobody loves you back. It can go on for years. It's not just, I gave it a week. They still aren't changing. Self-sacrificial means it costs you. It's not just, you know, writing a little note somewhere. This is you investing in somebody and they never pay back. That's so you have the right as a Christian to live that way. You have the right to forgive others the smaller debt as God in Christ has forgiven the larger debt. So I want to end with a quote by Vincent Thomas Lombardi, uh, born June 1914 through 1970. He said, The quality of a person's life is in direct proportion to their commitment to excellence, regardless of their chosen field of endeavor. And that is very true. So even when you're talking about God's kingdom, pursue that with excellence, as though you're actually pursuing kind of your own thing like people pursue their own thing with a lot of fire and vigor but when it comes down to sacrifice we kind of look for the path of least resistance to kind of see what we can kind of get by with which is why we like the rules and we like our own idea of fairness because then we can systemize things and then we can find out what's actually required and find out where we always kind of end up just a little bit on the the better end of the deal And the reason I'm saying that is because I do it. That's the only reason I know it, not because anyone has shared with me that they do it. But I like to know a system 
so that I can find out what's required of the system and find out how little I can put into the system and still get by and how much I can still retain for myself. Which is really awesome when Jesus says there is no system. Kind of takes that away from us to do it. So uh, as the worship band returns, say that right? Um, I will end with uh, uh, make your life count. Put your excellence into God's kingdom. And I promise you will not be disappointed. Dear Lord, I thank you so much, God, for your word and your kingdom and for giving us these clues into what it is. I pray that you give us the willingness to follow it and to follow you. In Jesus' name. We are in all. We are in all.